Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another amazing episode of Awesomeness uh, with video here on YouTube or audio only on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Uh, yeah, those platforms. <laughs> so, welcome to the show. This week, we're going to talk religion. I'm going to take it, we're going to take apart this word religion. And with me, I have a really awesome guest. His name is Owen Morgan, also known as Telltale or Telltale Atheist. He has his own YouTube channel, which is actually strikingly larger than mine, and I am very, very happy that he decided to be on my show here. I've been on a few shows with him talking Scientology. He is a former Jehovah's Witness, and he has put out a ton of content like I have on the subject, not only of the JWs or on Scientology, but all destructive cults, how to take it apart, how to deconstruct the belief system, what you know why we believe the things we do and i've had some great experiences with him on his show so i invited him to mine so welcome owen thanks thank you for having me so much i'm seriously really glad to be here so awesome man awesome well i'm glad to have you so okay well why don't we just get to it i have voiced in the past um this idea and i wanted to talk to another fellow you know youtuber atheist about this and see you know, have some back and forth on this, because it's just a little theory or idea that I have. And that is that I believe the word religion is one of the reasons it's such a loaded word is the limitations of the English language, specifically that we use this one word, but it actually means three wholly distinct and different things. And it's very hard when you're talking to somebody about religion to even differentiate which usage you are using. It would be so nice if we had separate words for these things. Um, by this, I mean, you have one religious belief, your own individual religious belief that exists completely 100% in your head. That is your religion or your religious ideas or belief. Then you have religious practice what you do with those beliefs in the real world, whether you go to church or not, whether you sing in the choir, whether you go to mass, whether you do confession, whether you're a Scientologist and you go down and get auditing or whatever the practice is, it's your personal expression of your religious beliefs and, and guidelines and rules following and all of that. But it's just you, just what you do. And finally, there is organized religion the group where now we're going to be, you know, this is cults and religions and the Catholics and the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and everybody else, organized religion where you have a group of people now and it necessitates that you have a leadership of some kind. Somebody has to be the leader or the spokesperson or the person in charge. And somehow there is a rulemaking body or, or guidelines or 10 commandments or however it evolves those rules and guidelines fall into place. So these are three distinct things, but all of them are called religion. Do you, do you just write off, do you think that causes confusion? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, <clears throat> sorry. I've noticed a lot of the time when we're dealing with cults and things like that, people oftentimes conflate a lot of those definitions. Um, it's really important to recognize the difference between religious belief and individual people or groups. Um, 
kind of recognize the difference between ideas and people specifically. That's, that's very, very important. Um, I noticed uh -huh. what you were saying there a second ago about um, religious groups having like leadership and hierarchy, things like that how important it is to recognize that a hierarchy is oftentimes part of a cult. Um, there, there's a distinction there uh, between different types of cults. And, and I've actually maintained for a while that to be a cult, you have to have two main things. Now, there is the bite model, uh, which is extremely mm -hmm. valuable. Like you can go down the bite model and identify these different parts, these different points, that just about every single cult meets, right? But I feel like the main points are behavior modification. That's, mm -hmm. that's the number one thing. You find behavior modification in cults. And also you find a hierarchy or leadership that's enforcing that behavior modification. That's something I've noticed with it. Agreed, for sure. I would, and I, maybe it's a matter of degree when we talk about uh, cults, or we start throwing that loaded word around, or and I and I of course try to differentiate by always saying destructive cult, yeah. because a cult by dictionary definition really could be just about any group that has you know a pretty solid belief system. But when you say destructive cult, now you're talking about something that's actually harming or abusing people. I've um, on my own end, I have whittled it down to a an abusive relationship because there are cults of two. There's, you know, there's the narcissistic relationship. And the reason I went in that direction is because in talking with psychologists and, and therapists, I found that uh, the mechanisms of what's going on up here in the leader's head and in the follower's head and the, the dynamic, the relationship between them is same, same, whether you're talking about a narcissistic relationship of two or, you know, the Church of Scientology, which is, you know, tens of thousands of people. Same dynamics there. What do you, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, I 100% agree with you there. It can be applied to an abusive relationship in a lot of ways. In fact, I use the bite model a lot in my, like, in my videos, my research and things like that. You can just go down the list and see all kinds of ways in which it applies to abusive relationships. Of course, there's a whole human trafficking aspect to the bite model too it applies to a lot of things like that That's also right. something else you need to factor into this is um cults of personality there may not necessarily be a hierarchy exactly but there is uh, some kind of a leadership at the top and a lot of the time they're kind of dictating what they like and what they want and people are kind of you know modifying their behavior to match what they want so Something else to take into consideration with this type of thing. I, I definitely agree on the, um, the abusive relationship aspect of that. Yeah. So then we look at, you know, I have run into over and over again. I'm curious about your experience with this. I have run into this so many times where you're talking, you know, again, this loaded word religion, right? You start talking about, you know, well, religion is bad or religion is coercive or religion is a control or manipulation, this kind of thing. And you're talking in your head, you're thinking organized religion, right? Or destructive cult activity yeah. using religious, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, cloaking, religious cloaking, like Scientology, for example, right? It's a business with religion layered on top to give it, you know, an air of authenticity. Yeah. Um, you're talking that, but what the people at the other end here is personal belief. 
is bad. Personal belief is wrong. I believe because I believe this thing, I'm somehow being controlled. And of course, that doesn't make any sense because you're the one generating the beliefs. So, you know, it's not that's not a control mechanism at all. I've run yeah. into this many, many times, and I've observed it with others where you can see the, the breakdown right in front of you. You're going, dude, d- you know, say this and you'll make everything better. And they don't. And it just gets worse I and know. worse and worse. You know? I know. I've, I've seen the exact same thing. <clears throat> Something else that's kind of uh, gotten to me a little bit is when people say that all religions are a cult. And right. Oh my God, that bothers me. Yes. <laughs> like you were saying with the whole. <laughs> uh religious belief versus um the religion itself it's so important to recognize that distinction um people get really defensive and hurt by that kind of thing and that's why i've been talking about attacking ideas and not individual people for a while i've been really harping on that as much as i can but this whole bit about religion being um just all religion being a cult it really gets to me because I feel like in a lot of ways, it kind of downplays the experiences and the pain and the the relevance of ex-Scientologists' experiences or ex-Jehovah's Witnesses or ex-Mormons' experiences. A lot of this stuff was really, really horrific that we've been through, you know? And it's just not the same as a standard believer who just goes to church on Sundays, lives their life and does their thing and, and, and keeps religion on the back burner. So that, that's been a sticking point for me. Me too. Huge sticking point. And I've tried to emphasize that a few times myself. I have, um, I think I have failed to be as clear about it as you probably have been based on what you just said there. Because, um, uh, you know, it is, it is a difficult thing to talk about because there are some very, very bitter people out there. Uh, former members of some of these groups, not just Scientology, I mean, any of these things, even Christian cults and homeschooling cults and stuff, yeah. they they come out of this stuff and they just paint with a very broad brush. And it makes complete sense. Of course they would. They feel very betrayed. There, There's trauma, there's stress, any kind of, you know, any association with that topic for a very long time for people newly coming out of these things is a trigger. You know, and so they tend to paint with these very broad brushes. That's what I think I'm seeing most of the time when I hear that, when I see these comments or incendiary language about how all religions or any belief, you know, you get these kind of militant atheist types as well, right? Any belief at all is just, you know, you're just a foolish idiot and it's all bad for you. I know exactly what you mean. I, uh, I was actually thinking about this the other day. I've tried to communicate this point tactfully, but it, it's honestly hard to communicate tactfully. Like these people are, are like ostensibly on our side, right? They're atheists. I'm an atheist. You're an atheist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. Yeah. <laughs> so agnostic atheist. I always have to, right, agnostic I always have to classify that. <laughs> Same. I am too. So yeah. ostensibly they're on our side and and so that's why it's like kind of jarring sometimes to hear somebody like attack us for not, you know, agreeing that all religion is a cult, for example, or something like that. And I noticed that kind of behavior in a lot of people. It's kind of extreme behavior in a lot of ways. Something that I've been kind of talking about for a while 
is something that I've noticed in a lot of cults, in a lot of extreme groups, is this thing called uh, placing extreme importance on an event or idea. It's de facto uh, an addition to the bite model, my own addition to it, if you want to call it that. But sure, it's basically where people like or think about this one. Yep. Jehovah's Witnesses celebrate or they don't celebrate Christmas, right? They don't celebrate any holidays and they have their reasons for each holiday. Um, their Christmas has its pagan roots or birthdays. Somebody, uh, every time there's a mention of a birthday party in the Bible, somebody loses their head, that kind of thing. <laughs> so, I, and, and it's like, is it really that important? Like how far removed from paganism is Christmas? You're, you're like completely removing yourself from this entire societal event over what? Why is it important? And that's, it, it, in a lot of ways that applies to, um, people who are really, really extreme about painting religion with a broad brush, they feel like, um, you know, all religion is a cult. That, that's just extremism. Like, you, you, you can go to extremes about just about anything. And I feel like we got to kind of ground ourselves and recognize that there's nuance in everything. Because once you lose the ability to see nuance, you've become an extremist, as far as I'm concerned. I, I literally taking the words right out of my mouth there. <laughs> that, exactly. And it's interesting because you look at, we talk about um, thought-stopping cliches. We talk about, you know, manipulation and control techniques. And these things are very, very real. This is not some illusion. You know, these, these are, these are well-documented, well-understood things that people, that these destructive cult leaders will do or manipulative politicians will do or propagandists will do. It's all same, same. It's just a matter of extreme and, uh, you know, of, of degree. Um, and they're all trying to create black and white thinking. They want a simple world. And there is a certain degree of um, desirability in having a simple worldview. You don't have to think too much. It doesn't take a lot of brain power. So you have more energy for things. You, know? you yeah. don't have to learn anything new because learning is hard. Learning is very, it requires a lot of energy Strenuous. to learn. Yes. And so there's a, there's a, you know, we, people wonder about the appeal of this. And this is really interesting. I didn't think we were going to go in this direction, but this is pretty cool. They, they wonder about the appeal of why do people join these groups? What is it about these groups, these high control groups, really any group, but especially these religious groups who, who have created a worldview that is very simple, very black and white. You do this. This is the reward you will get. You do this. This is the punishment you will get. And it, that has appeal, you know? And so people go, oh, well, that sounds like it's not such a bad idea. But then, of course, you know, nobody joins a cult. <laughs> they, don't, they, don't, right. they don't know that's what they're doing. And you get more and more and more involved and the dial gets turned up higher and higher because what's actually going on in a, in a true destructive cult versus what I think of as a religion, as an organized religion that actually is not a cult, is in the destructive cult model or, ass or, or situation, you have a leadership who premeditatedly and purposefully is trying to take advantage of their followers in some fashion or another, is trying to control them so that they get something back personally and immediately, whether it's sex, money, power, whatever it is that's going to get mm -hmm. them off. 
And in a religious setting where you have organized religion, you don't have that happening. You might have all the trappings of what the destructive cults use. And so they look similar, but that abusive relationship isn't happening the same way, you know? And that's, I think, a difference between, uh, but it's a nuanced thing. You have to have a lot of ability to, to see the nuances of those differences. What, what do you think? Nuance is really the key to this situation. Once you lose nuance, you lose it. You lose all of it. It, it. The entire discussion is pointless at that point. And uh, yeah, I, I can completely agree with you that uh, that it, it is just like an abusive relationship, and that is largely the difference. In fact, I th I think that you and I talked about this on my channel, but I wanted to see what you thought about it one more time. Yeah, uh, I I think that. Uh, Ray Franz was a governing body member of the Jehovah's Witnesses for a while. He wrote a book called Crisis, Crisis of Conscience. In that book, he was answering a question, something to the effect of, do you think that the governing body members know what they're doing? Do you think that they are knowing participants and scamming people intentionally? And his answer to that was, maybe a couple throughout history have but I, I really think that they're all pretty sincere. And, and just looking at that is extremely fascinating to think about the fact that like the, the, the current governing body members, they were raised in the religion too, a lot of them, uh, not all of them. Tony Morris, I think, was not raised in it. But at any rate, they were indoctrinated just like anybody else. And they were believers. They, they bought it hook, line, and sinker just like anybody else. And now they're in this position of power and dictating uh, the rules to people. So the question is, are they scammers? And, and I, think the answer, I think the answer you gave, which I agree with, is they're scammers whether they're doing it knowingly or not, right? Do you think that, um, in your case with Scientology, I think that Ron, I'm sorry, not Ron Miscavige, that's his father, David Miscavige, right? Yep. I think he basically runs everything pretty much. Um, and, and I think that you said you, you do think that he's uh, a scammer knowingly, right? I believe so. But he started as a true believer. And there is zero question about that. None whatsoever. He absolutely was a true believer. And I think now over the years, he has been, you know, he's, he's cast aside those because he saw the ridiculousness of the beliefs. But that was after he was already in a position of power. And that's what so gets what him off. Do. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, that that completely makes sense. I do wonder if some of the Jehovah's Witnesses governing body members realize what they're doing. Like, you know that they've got all of this information about all of these things that are happening that are genuinely crooked. Like, they're so wrong, some of the things that they're doing. And, and they know about those things and they're aware and they see how they all connect. And it just makes you like sit here and think to yourself, like, how can they possibly be true believers? You know, how could, how could they? Uh, but I guess that they just say they're doing it for Jehovah. Um, it's bizarre. It's, it's tough, man. It's a tough one because the reason why I think for me, at least, I can certainly say this with certainty, maybe this applies to other people, is that it is difficult to acknowledge that an abuser is also a victim. Yeah. You know, is also it's an extremely abusee. true. It's hard. Yeah. 
you know, because that tugs on the heartstrings a little bit. And it puts you in a position where you have to acknowledge that this person who's doing these horrible things is has been victimized in the past and is now assumed the role of abuser. So it gives you more understanding. Again, it introduces nuance into the equation where people really yeah. don't necessarily want that. And I yeah. think I think the answer depends. I think the acceptability of the answer depends a great deal on where somebody is at on their recovery process right. from coming out of maybe groups like that, right? Because uh, yeah. when you fresh come out, man, it's like, oh yeah, I remember, wanna, I remember. Yeah, you just want to hose everybody, you know. It's just I was so mad. I was so mad. Yeah, uh, you all go through that phase. And honestly, I went through that phase too. I, I think everybody does. And every now and then, I think that phase like still comes up for me where I'm just so angry and I just don't even care. I just want to just expose it at any cost, do whatever it takes, you know. Um, now I recognize in a, in a large way that a measured response is more productive, like vastly more productive. Like, Honestly, th this may get me a little bit of hate, so you feel free to cut this out if you want to. But um, going into kingdom halls and standing up in the middle of meetings and yelling about, you know, child abuse or whatever else is not super helpful at all. Nope. Um, nope. Yeah, I, I actually watched a video of this happening uh, a while back. Somebody goes into a kingdom hall and they, I guess this guy was giving a public talk and he was an apostate. Like they never took him off the talk circuit. So he starts talking about like all of, you know, all the crooked stuff that Jehovah's Witnesses do. And when people realized, you literally saw a woman cover her ears like this and put her head down. It, it was over from there. I, yep. I feel like that's kind of the key yep. is keeping people's guard down, like keep them from assuming that you're an enemy because the moment they think that you're an enemy it's over they're just that's the conversation's right. over so exactly. that, that's kind of the approach i take try to be uh calm and rational and not attack because the moment they feel attacked it's over exactly and i wish i could better practice what i preach because i absolutely agree with everything you just said and i have preached the exact same thing I have had my social media engagements, and of course, social media is, is a, it's a conflicted relationship. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? I know. Because <laughs> some days you're on and some days you're off, you know? It's just, yeah. uh, you know, I didn't need enough today, and so today I'm just going to be like ripping people a new asshole. Yep. Yep. And I do the exact same thing. It gets me into trouble sometimes. Exactly. Me too. Because And I don't think I've ever gone, I, I have been accused of uh, by my haters <laughs> of being a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've really crossed hypocritical lines. I've just had bad days and good days. But, um, but it is, it's a, it's a, it's a rough relationship on social media. It is the worst yeah. way to communicate to people. Uh, you know, in, as in terms of a communicative forum, especially Twitter, where you only got what 240 characters or something. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Twitter is um, Twitter is Twitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, some days I can use Twitter in good ways. Sometimes, like you yeah. know, I can use it to kind of promote good ideas and give people news and things. But other times, man, Twitter is just like a toxic mess. And I, I just Ugh. don't understand how that happens. Like, I'm not even involved in the toxic messes. Sometimes I'm just watching them happen over there. Like, yeah. wow, I'm so glad I'm not involved in that. Exactly. You know? Oh, my God. You know, and yeah, and yeah, you, you it's I have appreciated it for 
the skill set of being able to encapsulate a complex idea into such a short you know set of, of words or phrases that's been mm-hmm. uh as a writer i've appreciated that part of it yeah but other than that <laughs> it's been a mess yeah and yeah. and it's really easy to like it's really easy to just get pissed off at things that people say to you on there too and so it it it, it really is a test of how devoted are you to the philosophy of um, engaging people in a healthy way, really, basically? And that's right. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I've I've had my share of ripping people some new assholes on Twitter or, or elsewhere, just on social media. But generally, I do try to, you know, stay calm and not attack people if possible. Keep their guards down. That's really the key. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In terms of engagement, you're absolutely right. Getting back to that. And, um, and Bogosian's uh, talked about that as well. Of course, they have this new book about yep. impossible conversations. I haven't read that one yet. But he's the one who originates uh, street epistemology, which you've talked about. I've had Anthony yeah. Magnabosco on my channel and talked with him a few times. I actually have uh, Bogosian's book. He signed it for me back there. How, uh, Manual for Creating Atheists. Yeah, it's just like on that shelf over there. I was pretty oh, yeah. proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. He's, uh, he's a pretty good guy. Um, mm. And again, good advice. But he even says all that advice. Yeah, that, none of that works on social media. That, that's not right. Happening. That's not. And, and unfortunately, that seems to be the, the platform of engagement for people. And so they take some of what we talk about, perhaps, and try to apply it and fail and then go, oh, well, I guess there's no hope. Right. And you got to realize, you know, that no, there's plenty of hope, but it takes in, in-person engagement. It really does, because that, re- that takes away the anonymity. And so that removes a lot of the ill manners and pugnaciousness, you know, the pugilistic sort of, oh, I'm going to get you, you know, that kind of all fades when you're face to face with somebody, Very unless true. of course, you're Antifa and they're Nazis or something. That's a whole different right, thing. Right, right. <laughs> all bets are off then, right? Exactly. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, that Actually, that's kind of a problem. I don't know. Have you ever heard of Darren Brown before? Oh, yeah. Love that. Okay. Guy. I know, me too. Love the dude to death. So yep. he did this whole thing. You may have even seen it, but it was this thing about um, anonymity where he set, he had a crowd. They were all wearing masks and they're making a decision for a guy who was on camera and they follow the guy around all night. Right. And the people make decisions um, and, and they talk about like what happens when you have anonymity. And they ended up supposedly getting the guy killed of course that didn't actually happen uh it was kind of a play right but yeah it's a perfect illustration of what happens when people are anonymous they just don't even care they'll just ruin people's lives and that's extremely concerning so the whole face-to-face thing just looking people in the eye when you're engaging with them like that is so extremely important Exactly. And, and that's how you have instances, and I forget his name, but there's this uh, really brilliant, just really, really good guy. He's a, he's a black man in the South, and he has sat down and confronted and dealt with uh, KKK members and literally yeah. deconverted them. I think he, I think he keeps actually. their robes, doesn't he? Like he, they give yeah. him his robe and he's got like a room full of them or something. That's, that's awesome. Right. That's how you do it. Right. Exactly. That guy is the model, you know, and I um. anyway, yeah, I won't get into my whole uh, Antifa role. But anyway, getting back okay. to religion. <laughs> hey, 
Hey everyone, a quick word here about The Great Courses Plus, one of my favorite online education services which you can take advantage of right now. Have you ever heard the phrase, you don't know what you don't know? Well, The Great Courses Plus is the perfect place to help fill in those gaps. There are thousands of lectures on virtually any topic you can think of, even those you might not think of, but once you see them, you'll be like, what? I want to do that. And they're not put together by amateurs, but instead by top professors and professionals. You can take courses on the human brain, cultures of the world, physics in our universe, or even learn to meditate or how to cook. And the Great Courses Plus app makes it easy to watch or listen anytime, anywhere. This month, I want to recommend strategic thinking skills. Did you know that there are ways you can train your brain so you really can make more sense of this crazy world? It isn't easy, but it's really valuable and something you should look into. Healthy questioning and carrying a strategic masquerade can help you to prevent future mistakes or the disintegration of ideas. Right now, and for a limited time only, my listeners can get an entire month for free. Sign up now through my exclusive URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. Do it today. I'm sure you'll be glad you did. Um, I think it's, I think this is actually a really, really important part of engagement, whether on social media or in person is, is this, is this business of defining your terms. Maybe this is old mm -hmm. Socratic stuff, maybe even, you know, define your terms if you're going to talk to me or something. Yeah, it's really important. I mean, if you, if you don't define terms and a lot of the time you just kind of end up talking past each other, you start arguing at straw men and it just escalates and escalates and gets uglier. Um, you can knock the Socratic method all you want, but it's worked for a very long time, honestly. And um, the street epistemology thing we were talking about with Peter Bogosian, Anthony Magnabosco, and the others, that's kind of what it's based on, right? Is, that's um, right. Socratic, is Socratic reasoning. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's all it is. Well, it's and it's quite brilliant because if you can engage somebody, you can better engage a person's brain if you're asking them questions rather than making statements at them. Right. And that's really the trick, you know, or, or one of the key tricks. There are many, many others to it as well. But that's that's a very, very basic there, because when you ask a person a question, you are soliciting their response. You're giving them the idea or feeling that they are important enough that you are soliciting their feedback. Um, but more importantly, they have to think about it. <laughs> right. And it and it breaks down literal thinking or thought stopping cliches fairly quickly if you can persist at it in a genial, friendly fashion. Exactly. That's the trick right there. Genial and friendly. Right. Like I was saying earlier, if the guard goes up, then it's over. You can ask as many questions as you want. But if you're if if they feel interrogated by the questions, then they're not going to think about it. They're just going to pull those cliches out and spit them back at you. Exactly, so. exactly. My my cliche for that is that they build a thought fortress and that is of impervious walls you're never going to batter through. But if you can get them to open the door and invite you in. That's a good one. I like, I'm going to use that. Is that okay if I use that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, awesome. Yeah, no, that's, that's a thought fortress, man. That's, that's how it works. It's, uh, it's really something. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so what have you found? Um, what other problems have you found in talking about religion with people? What other problems have I found with talking about religion with people? Well, I feel like we kind of covered um, extreme. Uh, all right, here's the issue really is extremism in general. I feel like just yep. having a conversation with moderate, chill people isn't really the issue. So how right. do we approach extremists? And, and when I say that, I'm not just talking about um, Christian extremists. I'm talking about what we were talking about earlier with like extremists who just want to, you know, unleash on people because they're so upset. It's a complicated situation, but I really think that uh, keeping their guard down is the key in all cases and trying to lead them to nuance. Um, because as I said, extremism uh, excludes nuance basically by default as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I am wondering though, well, let, let me ask you this question. Um, yeah. Earlier you were saying that there there are a lot of leadership um, in various cults, like, for example, destructive cults, like, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientology, or whatever. Let's take Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. The, the, the governing body there um, are, are abusive. But mm -hmm. as you said, they're also victims of abuse, or they were at the very least. I have a lot of trouble figuring out how much to blame somebody for their their actions as a result of that abuse you know where where is that line it's a tough one it's so tough um okay here's let's see here how would i answer this um it's not a defense that you're brainwashed or you're been you know mentally manipulated or psychologically manipulated into a belief system that then causes you to do horrible things. If you do horrible things, that behavior has to be regulated or we simply don't have a society. It's, it's have really to protect that. society from it. Exactly. It's, it's that black and white. So it's not a matter of, uh, and of course I say that it's that black and white while, you know, of course, understanding yeah. <laughs> that there are 10,000 layers of nuance to it, but, um, but you don't have a society if you don't have laws and rules that everybody agrees to. And if you don't enforce those rules, you don't have a society because people immediately see that the rules don't really apply or they don't apply equally to everybody. And when, as soon as that happens, it throws out the whole tit for tat equation that everybody, that life itself operates on right. and it all just falls apart. So, so we have to discipline, we have to have discipline and we have to have the ability to enforce that on individuals who violate the rules, regardless of the reasons why they do it. 100% agree. Yeah, so I kind of go in that direction in terms of how do we deal with those people. However, uh, without getting into my prison system rant <laughs> or justice system rant, I will say that the way we go about dealing with people is actually quite harmful in itself because locking people up, especially solitary confinement for extended periods of time, is itself psychologically damaging and yeah. does nothing, nothing to help the person or rehabilitate them. So right. if if your goal is only to punish, uh, and it's all you know, you're you're kind of a Sharia follower of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You know, biblical uh, justice is the best justice. Well, that fits that, but this is the society you get when you when you run that. So 
I, su- I what, think what good does it do, right? I, I, I think that I fall on the side of we should be trying to rehabilitate and help people and fix the issue, yep. the underlying issue, instead of looking to punishment. And there are a lot of people who um, are probably uh, impossible to rehabilitate. Like it's, it's probably impossible to rehabilitate the murderer who killed like 20 people or something like that. But you still have to go into the situation assuming or hoping that you can, right? It, it, is that where you fall on it too? Kind of. I, I yes, I do. It's absolutely because you're absolutely right. You're not gonna. I'm not. There, there has never been any suggestion from my corner that let's go empty the prisons or you know the people on death row shouldn't be there or something like that. I definitely get that bad people do bad things and that they need to be dealt with again or you don't have a society. Um, but it's an interesting statistic. I I haven't verified it, but it is a statistic I have that. 90% of the people who are on death row suffer from frontal lobe damage. They've had traumatic brain injury of some kind during their life. And it really doesn't take that much to cause frontal damage if you get hit the right way with enough force, which is why football is ridiculous that we still play that. But, I know. I know. You know. Same page. Yeah. So, so that is a thing. That's a physical thing. You know, we talk about uh, Charles Whitman, the, the Texas Tower shooter. And mm-hmm. how he was found by autopsy to have a massive brain tumor. And once you learn that, all his behavior starts making a lot more sense in a whole different light. You can frame it a whole different way. And that opens the door to some degree of compassion or some degree of understanding of why this person is acting the way that they are. And it's actually completely out of their control. And once you see that, then punishment becomes sort of, uh, why are we doing that unless we're, unless we're interested in, you know, wetting our sadistic appetites? Are we really going to do something to this person that's going to actually be meaningful? Right. Well, not if they had no ability to control what they were doing in the first place. It's like you're trying to punish a diabetic for, for, for being diabetic, right? In a lot of ways... Uh, it it really brings into question free will and and that whole thing. A lot of the time, it's almost like we're machines in many ways. They're just like inputs and outputs. And uh, actually, David Eagleman talked about this in a book called Incognito: The Secret Lies of the Brain. You read that? I have it right. Back oh, there. that's so yeah. fantastic! <laughs> man. I love that. Is a really really good book. But yeah, it, it's just like. How can how can you blame people for this type of thing? In, in many cases, I I have a hard time, and it goes back to the whole cult leader. I'm sorry, the whole cult leader thing. Um, I I have a hard time blaming the governing body for the horrific, terrible things that they do on, on a daily basis. But like you said, we have to protect society from them. Bottom line, um, exactly, and, and they do have to face repercussions for the terrible things that they've done. So I, I would not be opposed to jailing them for society's protection if they did indeed break the law uh, exactly. and, and things like that. So That's right. It's, it's the difference between understanding how you have a Hitler. And of course, we had to go here. So of course, I, you know, had, yeah. had to, what, what's that law again? <laughs> uh, Godwin's law, I yes, think. Yes, yes. Had to violate Godwin's law. Had to, had to do it. Um, <laughs> 
but it's the extreme example that always that always sets that always everybody can always understand, right? So you have your Hitlers, you have your bad guys. And when you take the bad guy out, that really is the end of the story for most people, but it really shouldn't be because especially in Nazi Germany or destructive cults like Scientology or Jehovah's Witnesses, you get a perpetuation of a system. And the system is, an, is what's been described as institutional evil. You know, the, the Germans in World War II, just to belabor this point of the simile, the Germans who scheduled the trains you know, uh, worked in the factories, uh, bottling up the gas or whatever they were doing or, or, or you know. Just the, taking the, part in the. Yeah, procedure. the people whose normal day-to-day -day life was, was creating the system in some fashion, their contribution to it, because it was truly society-wide. It was systemic throughout the yeah. entire German society. All those people, you could line them all up against a wall and say, why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? You know, and not one of them is going to say anything other than it was a job. I was getting a paycheck. It was what I was told to do. This is my position in society. This is what I'm supposed to do. None of them are going to sit there and go, you know, I wanted to kill everybody I could as possible. I mean, right. some of them will, but you get a much, much, much wider base of people who we're just showing up to work. Yet, that's not a pass. It's an acknowledgement of the fact that, it, that evil, evil actions or evil activities can become systemic, where the system itself is the evil, not an individual in that system. Right. And you, can point, you can point to the Hitlers and you can say, well, he started it, he has to be punished, and the SS officers, they perpetuated it, and they have to be punished. Absolutely, they do. Without question, they have to be punished. But if we don't acknowledge and deal with the systemic issues, then you haven't really dealt with the problem fully, and it will happen again. Yeah, there's something that I've been reading about lately with like politics and everything called the Overton window. You may have heard of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, for people who haven't, though, I'll just say it's basically... Uh, it, it's it's pretty much the window of acceptable public discourse. Like right now in America, I would say it's unacceptable to be a communist, uh, it, it, you know, within like society. Like people say you're a fool for being a communist. That's kind of the standard view of it right now, right? Yep. And what I feel like uh, what you were talking about with like the Germany in the 40s and everything um, is the result of that Overton window moving to like an extreme place. And I, it's such a complicated thing to like moderate. And, and it's honestly extremely scary, like watching a lot of these ideas come out that, that are really, really disturbing. Like every time this really scary, crazy idea comes out, it's, it's shifting that Overton window a little bit more, a little bit more. And then you end up with a situation where 60, 70% of the German population is taking part in this massive, horrific thing um, with just because that's how it is. That's just what they're doing, you know? Like nobody jumped. All right, let me give you this example. Um, if you throw a frog in boiling water, it will jump out. That's a pretty, pretty common thing, right? Yep. You have to set it in cold water, turn the pot on, and let it boil itself. And 
that's also something you see with cults. Um, with society, you can see the Overton window shifting, acceptable public discourse shifting over and over. Um, and if you look at the final result in a cult, it, like in a destructive cult or, or even in an extreme society like 1940s Germany, it, it looks outrageous to us right now. It looks absolutely ridiculous. Like, look, listen to these beliefs, you know? Jehovah's Witnesses believe that 144,000 people are going to heaven. Like, how, how ridiculous is that on its face? That's absolutely crazy. But eight million, eight, eight and a half million people believe that. And so it, it's so fascinating and so important to understand how they got to that point. How did Jehovah's Witnesses get to the point where they believe these crazy things? And it's just like this this progressive, like just one step at a time, just one logical step at a time. It's like a step ladder. And just one kink in, in one of the points of logic will send you off in an entirely wrong direction. So that, that's something that you have to be aware of, something you have to watch for with that Overton window. Uh, even with, with destructive cults, you have to make sure that, uh, you have to recognize that people didn't get there by somebody just dropping those crazy beliefs in their lap. It, it was a buildup. Exactly. And speaking to that Overton window, this is a really good point. I'm glad you brought this up because I think it helps explain why people who may be freshly out of these groups or the more militant atheists or the more militant anti-religion guys uh, are that way, not because they want to destroy things or because they hate people. I mean, it comes out very aggressive sometimes, but that aggression you know, this is something I twigged on fairly recently, and it really hit me hard. I was having a conversation with a friend, and we got it got a little heated at one point, and he calmed me down, and he was like, it's okay, you're among friends, and I literally needed to hear that because I was like, yeah. But after that, and after we stopped and chilled, and then we got down to what the actual disagreement was, which is where we were moving in the direction of the whole time, it finally became clear to me that I was coming from a good place, but so was he. Mm. And my assumption, of course, was if he doesn't agree with me, then he's coming from a bad place. But once we settled, and, and that settled everything, because after I could see that very clearly, there was no ill will, there was no animosity, there was right. no lingering resentment of any kind. And I think that's kind of what we lack that 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 sense of completion or or closure in these conversations that we have because we don't uh, like these these militant guys for example let's talk about them they are coming from a place of trying to protect people from what they went through and the only way they know how to express themselves is God damn it don't do it you know it's yeah. horrible it's awful stop it you can't do that. And they don't, of course, realize that by doing that, they're just turning people away and, and, and raising in defenses, deeper. you know? Yep. But it comes yeah, from I a can, good place. Yeah, I can agree with you on that. Um, that. That's really the thing. I think a lot of the time it comes from a good place for a lot of people. Like everybody is a hero of their own story, right? Right. They all that's think, right. even the governing body members believe they're doing the right thing. They Or... You know, there there is the odd person who believes that they're doing the wrong thing and they're just doing it because they want to do it. Um, right. But I, largely, I think that almost everybody comes from a good place. And once you recognize that, it 
it makes you approach things a little bit differently. I, I think that the key to engaging in, in conversation with people is who are kind of aggressive toward you is engaging in a way that they don't expect you to like that. Like for example, Jehovah's witnesses have this whole idea built up about apostates and who they are and what they do and how evil they are. And they're going to do this thing and they're possessed by Satan and all this other stuff. So if you come in and recognize that that's how they view you and you instead break that narrative that the governing body has built up about you instead of coming into a kingdom hall and screaming and yelling and scaring people and everything just do it in a really mild way or even just give them a bottle of water be super polite to them and they're like that's uh not what we expected and suddenly they're thinking critically about who you are they realize you're not a not necessarily a bad person right and that and that you have um that you have goodwill just like you were saying they realize they have goodwill they realize you have goodwill too exactly because because whether they have goodwill or not and this is why it's why in a pragmatic or practical sense it's it's more sensible to approach these conversations or engagements this way whether you think they're coming from a good place or not doesn't really matter they think they are right so if you're going to engage with them you got to put that on the table you have to be willing to acknowledge that that's what they think and be okay with that because if you come at them with the you're evil and you must be destroyed and i'm going to engage with you now to prove that to you oh good luck with that right nobody's gonna right. sit still for that conversation right yeah that's another thing a lot of the time when you're engaging with people like this who are militant or extreme or angry or whatever else, <clears throat> for example, Jehovah's Witnesses or Scientologists or something, when they want to come at you, the conversation that, that ensues is not necessarily going to help uh, you or the Scientologist or Jehovah's Witness. A lot of the time, it's going to be beneficial for people around you to hear and and nobody else. Like you're not going to convince a uh, 30-year Scientologist that he's he's wrong uh, most of the time. Uh, oh yeah, so certainly screen- not on the first go, and certainly not in a in a right. hostile conversation. That's for sure. Right, right. It's a long process that takes time and patience. And exactly. so, just talking to them in a nice, calm manner and breaking that idea of how they view you uh, is, is extremely important for any other Scientologists or Jehovah's Witnesses or anybody at all who may be That's around right. listening to the conversation. Because this is politics as well. You know, yeah. I would throw off more Trump supporters who would come at me on social media because they would come at me with the whataboutism and, and you're just a Clinton supporter and lover. And, yeah. you know, you just wanted Clinton to win. You're just a, you're just upset. You're just crying baby tears because your person didn't win. And I would always throw them off their game by saying, who said I like Clinton? Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Who said that? Where, where, where can you find that on my timeline? You know, like, yeah, that's not it's not how this works, you know, and I and I really want to highlight what you just said, because I think you actually just said something very, very important uh, that that really aligns with what I've been learning about neuroscience and, and recent breakthroughs mm. in that recently. And that is that predictive factor that that throw you know it's not a matter of trying to throw somebody off for the sake of throwing them off 
it's a it's a matter of they're coming at you with a preset of beliefs about you. There are expectations they have. And because they have those expectations, just because of the way we think and operate and the way we see the world, what you say to them is going to go through this filter of these pre-expectations. They fully expect that that's how you're going to act. So they are going to translate or interpret everything you say and everything you do through that lens. It's not a level playing field where you're both coming in at this where you don't know what the other person's going to say or do. You've got your expectations of what they know and believe and think and how they're going to say what they're going to talk about, but they have just as many about you. And when you throw them off, when you do something unpredicted where they didn't see it coming, you're exactly right. This is so important that it, that forces critical thinking because it, it forces thinking. You know, when, right. when you act according to their preconceptions, they don't have to think. Right. There's, there's yeah. no thinking involved. And this also largely plays into humanizing people and, and seeing them past the label that you think that they have or, or the label that even they claim for themselves. Like people are people and they're not as shallow as, as a, a simple label a lot of the time, right? Uh, so we're atheists, uh, agnostic atheists, both of us, but there's so much more to us and our ideas and beliefs and feelings and everything than that. So if a Christian or a Jehovah's witness or something comes at us and they're like, oh, an atheist, you know, they, don't, they think this and they think that they're not humaning. I'm sorry. They're not humanizing us. They need to humanize us and we need to humanize them. We need to recognize that they are a lot more than just a, a Jehovah's witness. Um, I mean, there are some there are some standard cookie cutter beliefs that come with being a Jehovah's Witness, but not everybody buys into every single thing. It's pretty unified, but who knows? Maybe the person you're talking to has an issue with how they handle child sexual abuse, and you need to find that out. You need to talk to them. You need to realize that they're a human being with their own ideas and feelings and beliefs. And even if they do follow every single standard cookie cutter idea and belief that Jehovah's Witnesses have, you need to assume that maybe they don't. And maybe you can go in and treat them like a human being. I think that's really, really important. Exactly. And I think, I think, we've, uh, I, I think we've covered some good territory on this today with this. You know, this is, a, this is a deep well, and there are a lot of levels to it. You can go all the way down to the neurons on it, or you can you know, go up to the sociology of it and look at it on a group-wide level. And, and there's a lot of valid ways to look at all of this, but, it, but in the end, it comes down to, you know, be kind, be compassionate, have empathy, because if you do, you're going to find that your efforts to help the person that you're trying to help are going to pay off in much greater dividends than if you come at them from a hostile or antagonistic or you know, kind of uh, sort of sort of bent. And I think you and I are on the same page on how uh, protesters and people who um, who take on these engagement roles, you know, how they go about doing it. You know, sometimes they're they're going into it themselves and they're pretty pissed off. You know, and it's and and that's cathartic for them to go, you know, lamb based some believers yeah. or yell at a church building or, or carry some signs around. I get it. It's cathartic for you. Have at it. 
but don't pretend you're doing them a service because that's not what's right. going on. Exactly. I 100% agree with you on that one. I, I think we've agreed on, on an awful lot I know, today, right? actually. Speaking <laughs> of it, like, I didn't know you felt this way. That's crazy. No, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and, and, and all of these things, you know, this is not just religious specific. We're harping on religion, but this is politics. This is social issues. Yeah. This, is, this is all of this stuff because this thing doesn't differentiate those. Right. Yeah, there's no religious section in your brain. Right. <laughs> A lot of, seriously, they're so more closely linked than people realize, like, you know, politics, religion, and all of it. Exactly. I never imagined and never wanted to get into talking about politics. Right. Ever. Not my bag. Never wanted to be a political pundit. Did not want to get into it. But as soon as you see all the playbook, all the cult characteristics lining up, coming out of politicians mouths oh i know how can you not how, how do i you know look, how do you how do you keep your intellectual integrity <laughs> and go well i won't talk about that because it's just going to piss people off you go man i'm sorry i gotta deal with it yep i completely agree with you on that it's yeah. it is a struggle i i've tried to avoid it on my channel because i feel like i i, I have not avoided it in large part on twitter or, or in other social media uh, I, and I have addressed it on my channel before, but something you have to realize is that it's like I talk about a lot of these ideas on my channel and you would think that people would apply them to like other parts of their lives, right? Like I talk about how destructive cults do what they do and how they control people and things like that. Why are people not seeing this from every other part of their lives? I do not get it. It kills me. I know. That's what got me talking about it at first, too. And, you know, and it's a horrible example. People like just hate me for doing this. But, you know, I'm sorry, Trump is the best example, you know, right. or Kim Jong Un, you yeah. know, or Z over in China. I mean, or Putin. I mean, it's not like we have to strain the brain to find examples of this. But when it's right, it's that abusive home, relationship. Yes. Yeah. It's completely that. And, and the words and the manipulation techniques and the thought control and the thought stopping cliches. And, you know, you, you think Trump's holding all these rallies by accident? I mean, it's the right. same thing as Miscavige does. They do six or seven international events a year in Scientology. Why do they do that? Why does David Miscavige march out on a stage? Why do the JWs constantly pub publish briefings you know, to the to the membership and assemblies and everything. Yeah. Keep the indoctrination going because indoctrination yeah. fades if you don't keep reinforcing it. You know, if you don't keep it plugged in. Exactly. That's right. That's right. OK, man, I'm going to I'm going to let you go here. This has been a great hour. This has been really interesting. Yeah, I 100 percent agree. appreciate you having me on. It's been really, really amazing. Awesome. Awesome time. Awesome, man. All right. Well, hey, folks, any questions, comments, feedback, I am going to link uh, Telltale's channel below in the description section here on, on my YouTube channel and at sensiblyspeaking.com. Please leave any questions, comments, or feedback for me or uh, Owen, uh, and uh, we'll check it out. Really great having you. Thanks for coming around. See you next week. Bye-bye.